I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Fort, and Julia Borston. Today, Amazon shares are down big, flirting with the worst day since 2014. An Amazon bull will defend their results coming up this hour. Then call it a conflict of interest. Shares of Pinterest getting hammered after that monthly active user drop. Later on, Robinhood falls for a second straight day after that disappointing debut. A Robinhood bear joins us basically to say, I told you so, D. And we'll start with Amazon. This is really a story about revenue. After posting its first miss in three years, we guidance also not helping make the case this morning. Stock is down big today, already on pace for its worst day of the year of 2021 and closing in on its worst session in nearly seven years. CFO Brian Olsowski blamed the tough year-over-year comps after a pandemic surge, but investors this morning, guys, seem to think that this is more than a typical growth slowdown. And with this, guys, the era of Jassy begins. Guidance was weak, but John, remember, I know you know this well, is that Amazon is typically pretty conservative with guidance. And at the midpoint of what it set out for Q3, that represents 13% growth year over year. Yes, that would be its slowest rate of growth in 20 years, but could this potentially be setting up Andy Jassy for a surprise on the upside? Yeah, um, I I don't know what this is yet, but I, I look at this quarter and I see that uh, per member spend in Prime is up, that AWS was strong on uh, increased customer adoption across several industries, and they delivered revenue in the midpoint, at the midpoint of the range. And this is happening at a time when we're seeing the Delta variant, both here in the U.S. and in other places, unfortunately uh, surging, which could cause people to go back to more e-commerce behavior. It doesn't seem like the fundamental narrative to me Carl, uh, is changing for Amazon here. Everything that they're trying to do fundamentally seems to be working. There are some macro environment impacts, but, you know, the stock is back down to some June levels, right, from six weeks ago, and well, I guess we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah. Uh, Morgan Stanley this morning, guys, they do cut their target to 4,300, but to your broader point, John, uh, their general bullish case is that this is generally the time where you buy Amazon, you don't sell it, uh, that uh, investment cycles are offensive versus defensive. You look at what they're trying to do, D, with square footage of warehousing, that's bullish on demand, and that's not even counting the acceleration that we've talked about already this morning in both advertising and AWS. I'm so glad you bring that up advertising, right? This was 80 plus percent growth in this other revenue section with represents advertising. But let me just play, I guess, the bear case. I suppose Amazon was the leader in the mega caps tech names last year amidst the pandemic. It had run up a lot and it's just the expectations aren't the same. This was more of a pandemic play advertising going forward as we see demand in digital advertising come back. Yes, that is key to the story, John. But at the same time, this only represents 7% of total revenue. It really does come down to online stores. And we are going to likely, and the company says, likely to see a deceleration there. Yeah, you know how I love to play on the other hand. I mean, we, we saw uh, Alphabet's <laughs> earnings, and it had a rougher year uh, among big tech last year. And now this year, Mm -hmm. it's been outperforming. The uh, response from investors after its earnings was strong. Amazon, the opposite. Really strong year last year. But now this year with these earnings, boy, you know, the comps are are tough. Uh, You know, the the, uh, investors aren't responding well to this. But we'll have to see the second half. There it is. We'll have to see the second half 
of the year, how <laughs> Amazon's prepared. Uh, we were hoping so. Uh, with the logistics <laughs> system that it has been working on and uh, how AWS continues to hold up, Carl, against this, uh, you know, advances from Microsoft and from Google Cloud that we saw this week. Yeah, it does sort of put a period on, you know, we keep talking about uh, the incredible growth in, uh, in mega cap tech, but multiples at basically a uh, multi-year trough here. And again, to Morgan Stanley's point, stock's been flattish for more than a year. So uh, we're looking at some perhaps value creeping in. Speaking of which, our first guest uh, this hour does remain long on Amazon despite the drop today. Morris Mark of Mark Asset Management, longtime internet and media investor. It's been a while. It's great to have you back. Good morning. Uh, good, good to see you, uh, Carl, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Yeah. So you've seen a few investment cycles in Amazon, and you've seen what it looks like on the other side. Can you talk about what the right mentality is to have right now? I think the right mentality can be expressed a little bit by history. Uh, we took a position in 2008, and we made one mistake. We sold it in 2013 because we didn't like the quarterly report. We learned our lesson. We bought it back about nine months later, and we have shaved it since then because we control position size. But basically, we've been invested in it since that time. And uh, if we uh, look at the quarter, I thought it was a great quarter. I'm not being facetious, but there were a lot of crossover points in the quarter. You ended the quarter with roughly 50% of the revenues coming from fast-growing businesses and higher-margin businesses and 50% of the business coming from the old store business. Uh, and the old store business is projected to slow its growth over the next year because it's not, hopefully it won't have the, the COVID wave to back it up. We, we, want, we want that problem behind us for obvious reasons. And right now we're still in the middle of it. Morris, I don't, I'm not trying to be glib here, but I mean, this, this um notion of personnel is actually being written about today, not just the CFO's comments, but the fact that Bezos left right before this deceleration and the fact that uh, Jassy was not on the call. How important is that, if it's important at uh, all? I think I, I would have liked to have seen Jassy on the call. There's a great video interview of, of him in YouTube, which I think is worth watching because he comes off uh, the way he's come off in other interviews I've seen understated, very competitive, very smart, okay? Uh, it's a little premature to draw this conclusion, uh, but when Steve Jobs sadly, very sadly passed away, we, we spent a lot of time trying to learn about and understand Tim Cook, and we were impressed. Uh, and we feel right now the same way about Andrew Jassy. So uh, I think he'll be a big plus. I don't think Jeff left. I think really Jeff came back at the beginning of the uh, health crisis after he had started to step back a little bit. He's still executive chairman, which means all the one-way decisions are going to require his approval, mm. and he's still a major shareholder. You know, yeah. that's how he gets the money to finance uh, Blue Origin. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and, and it's enough money to finance a lot of things. We, we enjoy getting a chance to talk to Andy Jassy uh, here at CNBC and on Tech Check and, and hope to do that more. But Morris, I wonder as an investor and as a long-term investor, how you frame uh, Amazon's ambition now to be the world's best employer and the world's safest employer. That implies investment coming over time. I don't think they've quantified how much investment it's going to take uh, to, to reach that. But do you think 
that's a, a worthy investment to fend off some regulatory and other risks? And how, if at all, are, are you modeling the impact on the stock? I think that's good business, I, particularly in a world, in an ESG world, uh, in a world where people are more aware and where people can more easily communicate, in a world where social media can help or hurt you. Uh, I think it's good business and it's the right thing. Uh, and I think that when you uh, look at the company, they've been investing for uh, 25 years, roughly the time from the time they went public and before that. And by the way, parenthetically, Andrew Jassy was there then and started working on uh, Amazon Web Services very early. So uh, I, I think the real problem here is understanding that in relation to the guidance and in relation to how the company's actually doing and how it's being managed. Morris, it's Deirdre. Lost in the results a little bit was Amazon's return to work plan and how that was a departure from some of the other big tech names like Apple um, and Google. Amazon will be keeping its return date in September and it will not be mandating vaccines. I realize that this is a trickier proposition for Amazon that has a lot of warehouse workers. But in your view, is this the right move? I wish I knew. I mean, this is, I don't think that's an Amazon question. I think that's an economic question and a health question and a policy but, question. Uh, so I No, I other companies that. are making this decision, though. Yeah, I think. Um, On their own, especially when it comes to mandating the vaccine. Uh, I, I think that'll be easier to do once we get approvals. Okay. And I think there are two vaccines that matter. Uh, BioNTech, which is Pfizer and Moderna, because those are the ones that have shown high efficacy against the variants. Uh, and I think those are the ones that matter. Uh, and uh, I think businesses will make these decisions, but I think we're going to move towards mandate and it's going to come from businesses. It's going to come from institutions. In Amazon's case, it's more complex because, as you pointed out, it's not just an office thing. It's a warehouse thing. It's a delivery thing. It's a truck driver thing. You're dealing with union rules, which currently uh, voluntarily encourage vaccination, but then protect the, uh, the privacy of their employees. So we've got a lot of law that's going to be decided, I think, sooner than later. I'm encouraged by the fact that the Supreme Court agreed with Methodist Hospital, and I'm encouraged with the fact that a federal court agreed with Indiana University. And I think that's the direction, and it's the only direction we can go and be safe. Uh, even as you say it, uh, Morris, Walmart doubling its incentive for their staff to get the vaccine to $150. Uh, it's interesting to see the corporate evolution on this. It's always a treat for us and our viewers to see you, Morris. Thanks so much. Okay, Carl, a real, a real privilege. Thank you. In the meantime, shares of Pinterest getting slammed this morning, down 18.5%. Let's uh, bring in Julia to talk about the quarter, the, this rare drop in monthly active users. And I'm curious, Julia, for, for a long time, Pinterest kind of avoided video and sort of this creator thing. They, they seem to want to avoid being YouTube. But, but now they're doing it, but it seems for a specific subset of Pinteresty. Um, businesses. How are they navigating this and what's the expectation about the impact on the business? 
Well, look, there's so many different pieces at play here. First, John, we just have to talk about the reason why the stock is down so much. And that is because the monthly active user count that declined by 24 million between the first and second quarter. We now see shares down nearly 19 percent. It's so unusual to see this kind of quarter to quarter decline among users. And it really speaks to the fact that there was a lot of optimism during the pandemic as more and more people started using Pinterest that maybe it was going to find a much broader user base. Maybe it wasn't just about people saving recipes and doing home decor projects. And maybe that would last post pandemic. But I think what we're seeing now is this question of what is the future of Pinterest? Are we going to see this reversion to that core user base? Because there was strength in people using Pinterest on their mobile phones and particularly in these certain demographics of users. So I think to your question, John, about content and video content in particular, we're seeing this platform shift from being a place where you save ideas towards being a place where you might connect with content creators, follow uh, content creators, and then buy things. So once again, just as we said when we were talking about Facebook, uh, also, you know, Snap and some of these other platforms, that it's about the content creator and it's also about commerce. And I think the same certainly holds true with Pinterest here. Right. And Julie, I think what you're talking about is social commerce as well. Right. And getting beyond that core of just looking for stuff on the home page. So how does it actually do that? I wonder, was there any talk of M&A appetite on the call last night? You think about an Etsy that acquired a Depop to get into the social commerce space further and also capture that really valuable Gen Z demographic. Any thoughts on whether Pinterest, Pinterest needs to do something similar? You know, I think Pinterest has been slowly building these tools to enable it to be easier to, to buy things on the platform. They have these shoppable pins and different tools to do that. So not a lot of talk about M&A. I think the question is just sort of how much that ability to have commerce on the platform can drive advertising from e-commerce retailers and how much the shopping really has to be about what John just mentioned, this idea of the YouTube following these creators. You know, do they need to have the home decor stars selling the products and is it going to be about those content creators the way that instagram is elevating content creators or is it going to be about more brands um, or are we going to just get in this world of branded content where you have the the home decor stars partnering with the brands and in sort of this big um this big cluster of of, of retail advertising in this new way but i think that deirdre you know this is an area that that pinterest has been investing in for a while and they probably can push further into e-commerce without having to make an acquisition julia i wonder if this is part of the TikTokification of so much we've seen instagram sort of respond to the impact that TikTok has had when you know, content creators with video create short but highly impactful uh, videos that drive people to act or do something or, you know, kind of create commerce. And I wonder if uh, Pinterest is seeing some of that same thing and thinking, hey, well, this is this is the crowd that we're supposed to have. How do we take this trend and put our own spin on it? Well, John, to, to play on the other hand with you, I would say this is a chicken and egg situation. Is TikTok's success the manifestation of all these different trends that were already happening in the marketplace? Or is TikTok driving everyone else to follow this? And I think it's a little bit of both. Video was already hot, short form video, and now super short video on TikTok has become more popular than ever. Everyone's following it. And there's no question that video advertising is simply more valuable. And I think that's one reason we're seeing everyone shift from these static ads, even Pinterest away from these static ads to video ads, because they're simply more engaging. People pay more attention. 
Julia, what a story uh, and what a reaction on the stock. Obviously down almost 19 uh, percent this morning of Julia Borston. Robinhood did open lower again this morning. It actually went green for a bit, but an overall disappointing debut. Tech Check is just getting started. Some more troubling news for Robinhood this morning after a new report indicates that retail trading activity may have already peaked. Our Kate Rooney has more. Hey, Kate. Hey, Carl. That's been one of the bear cases for Robinhood's valuation. Fears that retail trading won't return to those early 2020 levels. And according to some new data from SimilarWeb, monthly active visits and time spent on Robinhood's app are all down significantly, as they put it, in the past three months. For Robinhood's web and mobile traffic, year-over-year growth fell to its lowest level in 18 months during June. Those website and app visits typically translate to user engagement, more downloads, and trading activity, which drives Robinhood's key revenue engine of payment for order flow. Time spent on the app is also lower, dipping below 10 minutes per visit. After January, Robinhood across the board, though, is still outpacing the rest of the brokerage industry and its competitors who don't see nearly the same engagement. Robinhood's web traffic, for example, is about double what Schwab sees. Analysts tell me that Robinhood is more comparable to a social media app than a brokerage firm when it comes to some of these stats. But it does add to fears that the best days are behind the brokerage industry when it comes to trading activity and growth. Analysts don't expect it to go back to pre-pandemic levels since so many new traders are now in the markets. It does add some pressure, though, on Robinhood to execute that vision to be what they're calling the single money app and add some of those new features they've teased recently. That includes retirement accounts, crypto wallets, and more banking products. John. All right, Kate, thank you. Well, yesterday's debut proved an opportunity for ARK's Kathy Wood, taking a $45 million position in Robinhood. But our next guest remains bearish, saying it's not all good in the hood. To be fair, she emailed us that she wasn't buying it before it hit the market. Wheelhouse CIO Ann Barry joins us now. And um, here's my question and concern overall about Robinhood. I'm not sure it's sticky. I'm not sure it has lock-in. I mean, Apple creates loyalty through hardware and that vertical integration of the experience, Google through Android, Gmail, Maps, all that, Facebook through the social graph. Why is anybody going to necessarily stick with Robinhood after, say, a 12-year bull market with some hiccups is done? There's not that employer tie-in or any of that that they're starting to talk about. I think that's exactly right. There isn't right now a compelling reason for users to stick with Robinhood. And, um, you know, when you look at the private market, which is where I spend my time, we're seeing a ton of new entrants coming into this uh, brokerage market with good apps, which are very user-friendly, and they're backed by very well-known investors who, if they choose to, can activate their fan bases and audiences to move to these new platforms very, very quickly and get new users potentially away from Robinhood. So I'm equally concerned about the stickiness issue as you are. So what does Robinhood have to do to convince you? Because there is a large and enthusiastic user base that likes the idea of not only having you know free trading, but also access to things like options trading and some of those things that have been reserved for the kind of Wall Street elite so-called in the past. I mean, maybe their sentiment shifts if the market takes a downturn, but for now, Robinhood has that audience. How do they convince you that they can take it higher from here? Well, for now they do, but I'm not convinced they can take it higher from here. And if we just go back in time a little bit, right at the beginning of this year, Robinhood raised capital at about a $12 billion valuation. And I don't think anything has changed over the last six months to justify this $20 billion pop as it came to the public market. And I don't think there's anything they can do in terms of new products to to take 
uh, not only upward movement from here in the share price, but even to justify where they are right now. In, in terms of offering options and other products, other entrants can do it. And sometimes it's actually better to not be the innovator uh, in the public domain. I think some of these other businesses we're seeing in the private market, whether it's public, uh, whether it's Tornado, which just raised a seed round, I think they can watch and learn from Robinhood. If Robinhood launches new products, maybe they'll get a little bit of activation for a short period of time, but they really risk losing then to second movers who come in and they do it faster and they do it better. Okay, and let me take the other side then. Innovation brings in a different demographic, and that's really Robinhood's bull case here is that it has this huge, young, hard-to-copy customer base. Now they have $2 billion plus to go out, expand its offering, create more products for them to use. Who else has that kind of opportunity? Well, I think in terms of that user base, uh, very attractive in the sense that these are new entrants into the market. Uh, more than 50% of Robinhood's users are new to investing in this way. But equally, that's a demographic that's known for being uh, quite fickle. They're perfectly ready to switch if there are other opportunities and other uh, providers to go to that offer a similar product in a compelling fashion. Fee-free trading isn't new. I think content's increasingly going to be important about parts of the value proposition. Again, people like Public, people like Tornado, focusing on providing um, educational content in a much deeper way as well. So when I think about another competitor, actually, I'm going to prove myself wrong. I think about Square Cash and how that has what's some 30 million users and it's doing some interesting things to try and attract more of that millennial and Gen Z audience. Do you think that that could potentially be Robinhood's biggest competitor? I think it could, but I think some other competitors have got much bigger balance sheets than Robinhood. One of the ones I'm always looking at uh, is PayPal. I, I own some PayPal stock personally. That's a business that's a blue chip financial uh, tech business. It has tens of billions of dollars of cash waiting to deploy. It's got a proven business model and a massive user base that is sitting right there, ready to diversify into other kinds of products, such as the ones Robinhood is offering. And PayPal can do it, uh, used to being in the public domain, huge amounts of technological innovation behind it. I think that's one to watch as it looks to move into new white spaces. And we had, a, we had a lot of discussion yesterday about whether or not some of the legacy uh, trading platforms are too stodgy to steal mindshare, at least from Robinhood's core audience, or whether or not there's some way to make that those platforms cool again with a younger a clientele. Are they, do they have no hope, or do you think they could actually make uh, directional improvements to steal some of those? I think they can make directional improvements. I don't think all hope is dead. What I do think is important is for these uh, legacy or more mature brokerages to think extremely hard about partnering with next generation uh, creators. This is something we spend a ton of our time thinking about at Wheelhouse, how to engage with next gen creators who can bring massive audiences to products and brands they feel authentically very engaged with. So whether it's Schwab, whether it's E-Trade, uh, whether it's Fidelity, if they can engage with some of these TikTok influencers, something like 40% now of millennials are going to TikTok for financial education. If, if some of these legacy guys can partner with some of that younger talent and get enthusiasm up with great user experience, I think there is a way for them to move into a different direction. Well, we had early Robin Hood investors with the bull case yesterday and Barry with the bear case today. Thank you, Anne. Have a good weekend. I love FinTech, by the way. Uh, the last trading day of July, another tough one for Chinese tech. That story is up next. Stay with us. We're back in soon.
Resetting here near the bottom of the hour. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. The Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq all in the red this morning, although in fairly, uh, fairly steady state. Dow's down about 83, their second weekly decline in three. More on that in a moment, but let's get to Frank Holland first with a news update. Hey, Frank. Hey, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Walmart is bringing back its mask mandate for store workers in counties with high COVID transmission rates. This according to Dow Jones. Customers in those high-risk areas will be encouraged, but not required, to wear a mask. And in New York, shots and masks will be required to see a Broadway play or a musical. The League of All 41 Theaters announcing its COVID policies for when the shows reopen this fall. Consumer sentiment edging up in the latest reading from the University of Michigan, but it's still down from this time last month, driven by rising inflation concerns and worries about the economic recovery. Consumer spending, that remains strong. It was up a robust 1% in June. However, part of that increase reflects higher prices. The Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, a key inflation measure, that rose four-tenths last month and is up 3.5% over the last year. I think anybody who's bought a car recently has seen it personally. John, back over to you. Yeah, if you can find a car, for sure, Frank. (laughs) Thanks. Now, it's been a big week for tech earnings, but... Uh, You know, some of them have done quite well on paper, but not so much their stock prices. Something to find, uh, poke holes in in many of these results, uh, if you're looking for it. Some softness, perhaps. Uh, Mike Santoli is with us with a look at what it means for the appetite for FANG. Mike. Yeah, John, the question is, is this a leadership breakdown where huge cap tech can no longer really help the overall market or just kind of a little bit of a haircut on these stocks that had run up into earnings and then found some uh, some soft footing right there? What we've seen all year is basically a leadership shift going back and forth between huge cap tech. The FDN is a fang-like ETF. Uh, a third of it is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Alphabet. It does not have Apple, but it trades very much in line with sort of traditional fang. Neck and neck coming into today just about with the industrials, which is really the anti- FANG in the sense that it's manufacturers and transportation, mostly sickles. Look how this happened. All FANG coming out of the gate this year, huge performance split, and then it went the other way. FANG underperforms for months, whereas the cyclicals managed to take over. What's interesting now is we're basically kind of chopping back and forth, both of them sitting on gains. It's a little bit less clear whether we're in kind of a reflation type trade, global growth accelerating, or it's just going to be about, you know, kind of disinflation, hiding the secular growth. One thing I'll point out about the earnings reactions this week with Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Alphabet, right? And of course, Amazon, they've given back between three days and one month of gains. In other words, they've just kind of slid back to those levels and not necessarily really fallen apart. Amazon looks a little bit touch and go because it really hadn't done anything for months. But that's just to put it in perspective that we're not necessarily seeing a wholesale rethink. We're saying we got a little bit overexcited coming into uh, this earnings report and uh, and basically we're vulnerable to some slippage, guys. You know, Mike, we've been talking for a couple weeks now about the seasonal weakness of August and September. Um, Some have pointed out the AD line on the NYSC, no new highs since June. How important would it be if we got back to that? Uh, if we got back to, in other words, if the index came back down to meet the uh, the advanced decline well, line. Or, or if we started getting a better ratio. Yeah. Well, that's the big question. I mean, you can reconcile these things in, in two ways. Um, you definitely want to see breath support the overall index moves, but it's not a prerequisite. We've gone months without necessarily having to have broad participation. But what's interesting is things like small caps started to perk up. 
this week. Uh, they've been thwarted for a while. So I think it's probably the biggest critique, aside from seasonals of this market, is that it has narrowed out a little bit. It seems like it's almost a scripted choreography that's been keeping the index in this very steady uptrend uh, to this date. And the question is, you know, is it doing it the hard way by relying on just a handful of stocks in this really magical rotation? Uh, and does that at some point break down? That's what we have to watch into uh, late summer. Yeah, fair enough. Mike Santoli, thank you very much. Meanwhile, the U.S. is stepping in after a wild week of tech crackdowns in China, which is the subject of today's thread. SEC Chair Gary Gensler announcing new guidelines calling for disclosure from Chinese firms in regards to their ownership structure. Chinese companies, they often use complicated shell companies called VIEs to skirt government restrictions on foreign ownership and overseas listings, which then allows U.S. investors to buy into these companies. The U.S. move that comes amid a week of surprising crackdowns by Beijing against some of the country's most popular brands. Just today, a different Chinese regulator announced that it will conduct oversight on competition and driver treatment for ride-hailing and on-demand trucking companies like Didi. Party leaders have told 25 of China's biggest tech firms, including Alibaba and Tencent, that they must conduct internal reviews on data security and consumer protections. And according to state media, officials promised at a meeting led by President Xi Jinping that they would improve the system of regulatory supervision for companies listing overseas. Indices tracking these Chinese tech industry have dropped 15 to 20 percent over the last month. And even M&A is under the gun here. The information reporting this morning that Chinese regulators haven't even begun the approval process for NVIDIA's $40 billion takeover of SoftBank-backed chipmaker Arm, which was announced last September. Chinese officials spoke with financial institutions, including Goldman Sachs and UBS, earlier this week to ease some of those investment fears. But given the recent downturn, guys, it may be hard to court any foreign investment moving forward. And, John, this is really about some of the unintended consequences here. If Beijing's aim, and I think it's becoming a little bit clearer, is to crack down on these platforms and perhaps boost some of the hard technology like chips and robotics, um, this is really scaring investors off of the whole field and they may not be able to achieve what they want. Yeah, I wonder what the long game is here as uh, China perceives it. And how much clarity do you really think, uh, more clarity, I guess, do you really think that we have here? Does this start to solidify things or are we looking for some more specific uh, guardrails that uh, Chinese businesses can stay within and perhaps uh, stay outside of the government's ire? I think at this point, when you see the SEC's Gary Gensler start to take action, we don't know where this is going to end. And Carl, you mentioned this earlier, but some of the Wall Street brokerages getting more and more cautious because there are just so many uncertainties. Earlier this morning, I looked at SMIC, SIMC, excuse me, which is you know, large state-backed Chinese chip maker, they have not fallen. They've actually been able to increase their value over the last few weeks. Um, and this is a chip maker, right? But it's difficult when a government gets involved and their state-owned companies to know where one crackdown ends and the next begins. And when investors in other places, Carl, we talked about SoftBank yesterday, start to hurt and have to cash in their winning positions to make up for these losses. Right. Right. Uh, and, you know, between the China order, uh, the SEC, uh, the ByteDance founder, uh, John, we're getting a sense, 
a, a better, a clearer picture as to not just why Kathy Wood has said these names deserve a true reset, but also why John Chambers on this particular show this week said he thinks the road's going to get bumpier before it gets better. Yeah, uh, and a long road uh, to be sure, Carl. Um, meanwhile, as we move on, Adobe CEO Shantanu Narayan, we're going to hear from him on the Walmart partnership next and more. What a run for that stock, too. Trading near all-time highs, market cap near $300 billion. Tech check, back in two. Welcome back. Walmart announced this week it's using Adobe technology to offer marketplace software to retailers. I got the chance to talk to Adobe CEO Shantu Narayan in a Fort Knox one-on-one, and here's what he told me about partnerships and the growth of the commerce business. We were thrilled when they announced that, you know, they were going to be working with Adobe technology to enable people uh, to, you know, do this last mile of commerce, to engage directly with customers. To just give you one example, since 2018, I believe that the number of people who buy online but maybe go into a physical store to pick up uh, has probably doubled or close to tripled. So I think, you know, the partnership with Walmart hopefully leverages uh, for us uh, their reach their distribution and their desire to, you know, enable more customers to do that. I met Shantanu 20 years ago when I was a young reporter in Silicon Valley, and he was starting his rise through Adobe. He told me he's had to change and change the company. Remember, he moved to a cloud and subscription model before anyone else. I've never actually answered a phone call since I joined Adobe. There was no need to do it. A phone call from the headhunter? No, never. And I remember one thing that John said to me, uh, John Warnock said to me at one point, he said, if you don't like your job, this was when I became CEO, he said, you have one person to blame. He clearly <laughs> meant, you know, I had myself to blame and, and that stuck with me, right? I mean, I, if I can recreate my job at the company and do things that excite me and have impact, what message am I sending to the other employees, right? And so I've loved every minute of it. Never taken a call from a headhunter. Um, I enjoyed the conversation. You can find the whole thing uh, on Tech Check's LinkedIn page and in our show Twitter stream. Check it out. D. Somewhat surprising given his reputation. Uh, great stuff, John. Certainly worth the full watch. Meanwhile, this company just announced a billion dollar round this morning. The CEO of GoPuff is next. And later, Scott Minard of Guggenheim, a GoPuff investor, by the way, joins the half at noon. He's got a warning for the stock market. Stay with us. Delivery startup GoPuff announcing a $1 billion deal funding round that values the startup at $15 billion, confirming our earlier reporting. GoPuff competes with the likes of Uber and DoorDash, but unlike its public market competitors, deeper in the logistics space, actually owning and operating its network of micro-fulfillment centers across the U.S. Joining us now is GoPuff co-founder and CEO, Yakir Gola. Yakir, it's great to see you this morning. Now, the gig economy model has really been characterized by startups using billions of dollars in venture capital to essentially subsidize a consumer, grab market share. You guys have raised now about $2.5 billion in just the last 10 months. Is your model any different? How do you think about growth versus profits? for having me today, Deirdre. It's great to be on today. Look, it's an exciting day for GoPuff. You know, what I can tell you is when Raf and I started this company eight years ago, it was important for us to build a business that is very profitable and has really strong margins. So when you look at our business, due to the vertical integration, we make our margins off our product sales and our advertising business, not off drivers and service fees. So fundamentally, you know, the business model is different. 
Also, we were cash flow positive for the first three years before raising a single dollar of capital. So when you think about our business and our position in the market, we never needed capital. Although we are excited about announcing such world-class investors in this new round, as GoPuff has built a leadership position in this instant needs category, we're excited about continuing to accelerate our leadership. Things like advertising, that is a key differentiator, um, especially when it comes to margins, I would imagine. You recently said, Yik, here in a podcast that you guys were profitable in all of your top markets. How many markets is that out of the total? Yeah, the way to look at it is we look at comp markets and all comp markets that are over 18 months and older are profitable. Look, and that's the benefit of being in business for eight years and the business in the beginning, you know, never raising money is because the existing markets today are generating cash flow, putting the business in a really strong position for the future. And we've seen incredible growth uh, throughout our margins uh, and as well as the customer demand. So it's, it's really strong better. Yakir, last question to you. You recently did a partnership with Uber, and I wonder, why did you choose Uber, say, over an Instacart? Did you talk to them? Yeah, look, GoPuff today has over 500 micro-fulfillment centers, and we have millions of happy customers globally. And so when you think about the leadership position we have in this category, you know, we build a great relationship with many people, uh, but we're very excited about the partnership with Uber. Uber being the leader in the logistics space, you know, turned to us and said, we, we see your leadership position, we see the competitive advantage, all the infrastructure that you built out, the massive amount of liquor licenses, and the eight-year head start that you have, and we realized that you know, they would be a great partner for us. So we're really excited about the Uber partnership that we have. And we're... You care, we'll... We'll leave it there. I think we're having some, some issues with the transmission, but uh, congratulations on the round. Looking forward to see what you guys do. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Tech Check podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. And Tech Check on TV will be back in just a moment. As you may know by now, Scarlett Johansson suing Disney in a move that could have wide-ranging repercussions for streamers. Her agent, Brian Lord, the co-chair of CAA, just now putting out a statement saying Disney's direct attack on her character and all else they implied is beneath the company that many of us in the creative community have worked with successfully for decades. Uh, Julia Borston has more on the lawsuit uh, that all of Hollywood and Wall Street is watching. Julia, this one line, uh, the company included her salary in the statement in an attempt to weaponize her success as if that were something she should be ashamed of. Just remarkable rhetoric going back and forth. Yeah, go, going back and forth between CAA and Disney, really an accusation that Disney is not handling this well, one that a lot of people in the industry are talking about right now. Now, I think really, Carl, at the center of this debate is the question of whether the interests of the studios and the movie stars are no longer aligned now that the media giants are really focused on growing their streaming subscriber bases. bases. Now, at issue is how studios navigate needing flexibility around how they distribute movies and how talent secures 
fair compensation. Now, sources tell me that before this lawsuit, Disney was starting to talk to talent about how it would give additional compensation for its summer movies, including Cruella and Black Widow, once those films were nearing the end of their theatrical runs. Now, Disney did not fully buy out the back-end bonuses the way that Warner Media did. Now, Warner's paid talent about $200 million in total to account for its simultaneous release of films on HBO Max. Now, that's because Disney is including those $30 movie rentals in its bonus calculations, along with box office revenue. Remember, HBO Max, those movies were just free if you were a subscriber. Now, Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit alleges that Disney isn't adequately compensating her for the full value that she brings to the Disney Plus subscription, not just to the individual movie sales for Black Widow. But Disney indicates that Johansson's demands don't take into account the degree to which COVID may have depressed the total revenue across both box office and digital payments, noting that films are far from reaching pre-pandemic levels, even if you account for revenue from those streaming purchases. Now, a key number in focus here is the 68% drop between Black Widow's opening weekend and the second weekend box office. That's after the film also generated $60 million in revenue from the $30 home purchases the opening weekend. Now, sources tell me we should expect going forward studios to increasingly compensate talent entirely upfront. That's what Netflix does because there is no box office rather than compensating based on performance that would give studios the flexibility to put films on their increasingly important streaming services. Carl, back over to you. Julia, I mean, the the elephant in the room or or maybe the superhero in the room here is Robert Downey Jr., right? Uh, Iron Man, who I think also earned 20 million up front uh, for the the last uh, Avengers movie, but had that back end and really from Iron Man through Avengers sort of get some credit as an actor for for building the franchise and for getting those enormous back end payments. No women in this series really did that. And so it seems kind of like an unforced error for Disney and Scarlett Johansson to be battling each other over this movie that was supposed to be about female empowerment. It's, it's amazing to me that they couldn't figure this out. Well, look, well, look, it's Captain Marvel. There's also Captain Marvel. Don't forget about Captain Marvel. That was a huge success. And now Black Widow. I think Robert Downey Jr. was very lucky in terms of timing is that his arc as part of the Avengers ended before the pandemic and this total transformation of how the movie distribution industry works. Um, but Captain Marvel is probably the film that the Black Widow, uh, that Black Widow is being compared against right now. Another female-led superhero movie. And then the other movie to compare it to also is the Wonder Woman movie, Wonder Woman 1984 from Warner Brothers. That movie simultaneously released on HBO Max without having to pay anything additional and also in theaters, but certainly at a much tougher time for the box office. Uh, just a remarkable turn uh, for a, a, a situation that was coming one way or another. Uh, JB, thanks. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.